Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning. Excited to explore God's word with you. Let's open up our Bibles. Uh, If you have them with you, we're going to be headed to the Gospel of Matthew, of course, continuing in our series. And and today we're going to be continuing talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. And so we're in chapter 5. A little bit of a longer text today, verses 13 to 48. That's where we're headed. So uh, again, as you're turning there, this is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 to 48. And I hope that as uh, we go through the text together, as we read it, and that as you're, you're reading along and, and intently listening, that this passage will be one that's somewhat familiar to you. And familiar because it wasn't all that long ago this summer we went through our Words in Stone series looking at the Ten Commandments. And in that series, we continually came back to this text that we're looking at today in Matthew. And we did that because in this text in particular, Jesus, not just once or twice, but repeatedly references the Old Testament law. And he talks about the law a lot in this passage. This passage, unique to Matthew, is really key to our understanding of how Jesus relates with the law of old. And That should be important to us because if we're Bible readers, if we're studiers of the Bible, if we're lifelong, hopefully, students of God's word, then we should want to understand how the New Testament relates with the Old Testament. And we should want to understand how the Old Testament relates with the New Testament, how they're connected, how the scripture is God's story of redemption. That's what what the Testaments record. And they work together. That God's plan wasn't just random or unintentional and just thrown together, but that he was careful and deliberate in how he worked to save us. And so no matter where we are in the book, beginning, middle, end, here in Matthew, we need to be asking ourselves, where in that broader story of redemption are we? And what's going on here? So here we are in Matthew. We've talked about After years of silence, now the Messiah has come. And here he is. He's beginning his earthly ministry now. And he begins to talk about the law. And so if we take a step back, we can ask the questions that we should be asking. What is Jesus' relationship with the law going to be like? Is he here to replace the law? to add to the law, to change it in some way, to raise the standard of the law? What is he doing here? Or as we talked about this summer, is Jesus sharing with us what God's heart for the law was all along? We're going to see a pattern as we read this text. It's going to be pretty obvious, this pattern. And the pattern is going to tell us, it's clearly communicating to us that over time, God's law had become misunderstood and misapplied by his people. We'll learn that the law is important because it reminds us that human righteousness, our righteousness, simply isn't enough. We might like to think we're pretty good, but the standard for good is not how well you measure up to your neighbor. The standard for good is how well you measure up to a perfect and holy God. And the truth is that none of us do. None of us do. Human righteousness 
simply isn't enough. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sound good? All right. I'm going to ask God's help over our time, and then we'll read the text together. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, take a deep breath now before we enter into your word as we approach your revelation to us. We come to you. We come to you thankful that you give us your word and that you reveal yourself to us in it. That as we approach it, we can come to encounter you, the true and living God. And that is my prayer this morning, Father, that you would be with me as I speak and that that's exactly what would happen in this room, that you would speak and that you would open up our ears to hear from you this morning. May your spirit guide my words. Speak through me. We need your help. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. Matthew 5, 13 to 48. This is a big passage. And we're going to take the time. We're going to take the time to go through all of it. And I'm just giving you fair warning. It's going to be longer. We're going to spend a couple minutes here just looking at the text. But let's take the time to hear what Jesus has to say. These are the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come. And offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, (laughs) we got through it. That's a long passage. There's a lot in there. Someone asked me, uh, what did you do to make Pastor Jay so mad to give you such a long (laughs) section? Uh, The truth is, Pastor Jay really prayerfully considers how these are divvied up. And it's part of his shepherding duties of us as a congregation as he takes us through God's word and And we can trust it. He spends a lot of time on that. And so there's a reason. In this passage, did you hear the pattern? Did you hear the pattern? Jesus repeatedly, six times, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what's going on here? What is Jesus getting at? This is what ties it all together. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So 
we'll work to it together, but we're going to stay at a little bit of a higher level, okay? We're not going to be able to. We could easily break this passage into several quality sermons, several, um, but that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to stay a little bit more high level. So where better to start than at the beginning here, verse 13, the beginning of our section. Jesus is talking to his followers, those who he previously has just called in last week's text, blessed or blessed, talking to the same ones. And what does he say to them? He's mentioning these concepts of salt and light. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Remember who he's talking to here. So what is it about being a follower of Jesus that allows you to be salt or that allows you to be light? How, as a light, are you able to shine? Well, I'll tell you that it's not by going inside and locking the door and shutting the curtains. Jesus says a light is not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be put on a stand. What does he say here? Verse 16, let your light Shine. He goes on. Shine before others so that they may what? See. So they may see and see what? Your good works. It is visible Christian conduct that enables us to be Jesus' salt and light on the earth. How a Christian conducts himself How he lives his life in the presence of others has everything to do with being salt and light. And for this original audience, for these Jewish ears, what was it for them? What was the guidebook for how they ought to conduct themselves? What was the standard by which they strive to live by? What was it for them, the original audience, that separated what was good from what was bad? It was the law the law. And so for these Jewish ears, their hearts, their minds are completely going to the law when they're listening to Jesus say these things. And the law for them was something that impacted every aspect of their life, whether it be religious, ethical, legal, even social. We're talking about the things you can eat and the things you can't eat. Every aspect of life, the law so massively important to their way of life, it represented a way of life, a way of conducting yourself. So imagine, again, you're a follower of Jesus, you're Jewish, you're hearing him say these words to you, he's talking about salt and light, and he's commanding you to shine your light before others, that others might see your good works, and immediately your thoughts are going to the law. Of course, Jesus is asking me to live in accordance with the law. Okay, I can do that. I'll recite the Shema every morning and evening. I will give my extras to the poor. I will rest on the Sabbath. I will give my first fruits to the Lord etc., etc., all your focus is on outward action, on the good works that Jesus is asking you to do, but all your focus is on those outward responses. And Jesus is about to offer a corrective to that way of thinking. Now, there were already those during this time who believed Jesus to be a false prophet, And they wanted to make him out as such. And and the way that they did this was they attacked him as being anti-law. Again, remember, something that holds so much value in this culture. 
that affects every aspect of life. If they could make Jesus out to be anti-law, then they had him. And so if you read further on in this gospel, if you're familiar with the other gospel accounts or with, if you're familiar with Jesus' life, you'll know that the Pharisees and skeptics continually came at him with this question of how he relates to the law because they wanted to try to trap him into making a statement that would show that he could somehow either denounce Moses, denounce the law, or even break the law. And if they could get him to do that, and they could make him out to be a blasphemous lawbreaker, and they could shame him. Because take a step back here, what's going on? Jesus is preaching to crowds. This Jesus guy's got sway over the people now. And wait a minute, that was, that was our sway. And we're losing influence. And so it was a little politically motivated for Jesus' skeptics to make him out to be a lawbreaker. And so you continue to see these questions follow him of how he relates to the law. Politically motivated, not so different than our political atmosphere today. You'll hear a reporter go up to a politician, ask them a question. They're in the midst of a campaign. Ask him a question that's not a fair question. It's a question that's supposed to trap them into saying something that's going to hurt their popularity. And that's sort of what's going on here with Jesus. But unlike politicians of our day who answer those questions kind of vaguely or beat around the bush or or don't really say anything of substance, don't really answer the question, Jesus directly answers the question. And he does that here in verse 17. He says, do not think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Hard to be any more clear than that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is a profound statement. Jesus is pointing to the prophetic nature of the law, how the law pointed forward to a coming Messiah who would come. And he's saying that I am that Messiah in whom the law is fulfilled. I'm the one who the law is pointing forward to. That is me. And and we could spend a lot of time, again, probably a whole sermon talking about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. But that's not our point today, so we have to move on. Um, And so we will. Jesus isn't done here addressing his skeptics. He continues in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest part of the law, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is leaving no room for doubt in how he views the law. He has a high view of the law. And for him, the law is very important. The law was originally given to unholy people so that they could be in a relationship with a holy God. But it was never intended to be the way forever that they could be in a relationship with a holy God. It was only a temporary way. And Jesus' arrival on the scene as the Messiah represents the beginning of the end of that temporary way of relating with God. But Jesus' stance here is clear. 
the law is far from forgotten. In his kingdom, there is distinction between who treasures God's commands and he who does not. So again, put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish listener here listening to Jesus. And so you're here, you're listening to Jesus talk about shining your light before others, the importance of obeying the law. And you're thinking, okay, not much new going on here. I understand that. I've heard this lesson before. Obey the law. I can do that. No problem. Been there, done that. I'm, relatively speaking, a follower of the law. I'll be in good shape. Maybe I will be one of those ones called great in Jesus' kingdom. But then Jesus drops this on you in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden, you've gone from potentially being called great in Jesus' kingdom to not even making it in the front door. Because whose righteousness could possibly surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees? We're talking about the guys who made it their life mission. Everything they did and what they were all about was to study, dissect, and keep the law. And Jesus says, not only, he doesn't even say your righteousness can be on par with that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And he seemingly sets an impossible standard for me, a normal person, to enter into his kingdom. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is qualifying righteousness. What is it that makes one righteous? What is the standard, another way of asking it, what is the standard on which righteousness is based? Because for the Pharisees and scribes, their righteousness was self-proclaimed. It was self-proclaimed on the basis of their strict adherence to the law, on how well they followed the law. You may have heard the term before, works righteousness. Similar ideology. The belief that whether you're righteous or not depends on how well you follow some kind of moral code. And if you obey it enough, then you can call yourself righteous. If you do enough good things, enough good works, then you can be called righteous. Do you see where all the focus is? In this belief, your faith is completely reliant on human effort and human ability. And Jesus is saying that this type of righteousness, human self-made righteousness, simply isn't enough. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is alluding to a different standard by which our righteousness is truly measured. And this standard had not, and to this day, has not changed. But in the tradition, over time, the scribes and Pharisees had made the law itself, and obeying the law, the means to which you can be called righteous, and therefore the means to which you can be saved. And in that process, God's heart, his intention for what the law was, became lost. 
And so you see on your study sheet there that relational dependence on God became replaced with self-reliance. Humble recognition of sinfulness replaced with self-praise. And a longing for a Messiah, a Savior, replaced with self-confidence or self-contentedness. There are 613 commandments found in the Pentateuch. The scribes and Pharisees had measured righteousness to how well you followed all 613 of those commands. To the T. And in the rest of our passage, the bulk of our section this morning, Jesus brings up some of those commands included in the 613. He brings up specific examples of where God's heart had become lost in the process. And how it had just become about outward action now. Empty following of rules rather than obeying God's heart. See, Jesus taught a radical obedience. You might think that the Pharisees and scribes taught a radical obedience with 613 rules that you need to follow. But they were completely focused on the outward action. Jesus taught a radical obedience of the whole self in which a pure heart would overflow into righteous action. Do you see the difference? Jesus taught a radical obedience. The Pharisees and the scribes, they might have been able to quote the entire law word for word without error. That's how well they knew it. But did they really know it? Because they missed the point. They missed God's heart. This is why Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because adherence to the law is not the means to which you will enter the kingdom of heaven. If this were so, every single one of us wouldn't make it in. We wouldn't make it. We'd all be doomed. And so when Jesus drops this shocking statement, and it was shocking, verse 20 this, this statement would have been shocking to the original audience. That unless your righteousness is better than these guys who you deem righteous, you're not getting in. I like to think that their reaction would have been similar to that that the disciples had later on in Matthew, in Matthew 19, to a similar shocking statement that Jesus had. In this account, the rich young ruler has come to Jesus and asked what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus and him go back and forth. And their conversation ends with the rich young ruler walking away because he wants to go back to his riches instead of following Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the text says that the disciples were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And if our salvation was up to us, if our entrance into the kingdom was contingent on how well we obeyed God's commands, then we should ask the same question. Who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say to the disciples when they ask that question? He says, it is impossible. 
it is impossible for man. What a hopeless statement. It is impossible for man to be saved. But that's not all he says, is it? There is hope. It is impossible for man. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And here he was, God himself on earth, talking to lost sinners who he's coming to save. He's saying, you're right. It's impossible for you. But I'm here making it possible. He was on the road to make it possible for mankind to be saved. He was on the only road that could possibly make it possible for man to be saved. He was on the road to the cross. Because the righteousness, the standard for righteousness, had not changed. It has and always will be a holy and perfect God. And so by this standard, no one, no, not one, is righteous. So it is completely hopeless for man. But with God, there is hope. There is hope for all. Because he has made the impossible possible. He has made a way for us sinners to be justified before God. Because by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven does not just exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It exceeds that that any human can possibly muster. It must come from God. Such righteousness is not attained. It cannot be attained. It can only be given. And Jesus, in his perfect life of obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of death, death on a cross, is the authoritative source. Jesus is the source of the righteousness that we need to be saved. He is the Savior, the one through whom many will be made righteous. He is the only one, and he is the one who makes the impossible possible. Human righteousness simply isn't enough to save. And what has he already told John the Baptist when John is confused at why he should be baptized? What does he give his reason for to be baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. And what has he just said to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? You will be satisfied. There is hope for us. Jesus was on the way. He knew his mission. He knew the cup before him. He knew what he was doing. He has made a way for us to be saved. We need a righteousness that is not our own. Our righteousness can never save us. We need Jesus. So as we think about how to respond to God's word this morning, I think we must endeavor to constantly remind ourselves of our inadequacy to save ourselves. Because we're so quick to forget that. We're so quick to forget. I think we have a hard time accepting what Christ has freely given us. Yes, we can sing, Oh, to grace how great a debtor I'm daily constrained to be. Yes, we owe all our salvation to Jesus. But I heard it described this way by another pastor. He says, 
Too often, we believe Jesus paid our entry fee into Christianity, but we pay our monthly membership dues on our kingdom account through works. And that is not true. Salvation is not our righteousness plus Jesus' righteousness. It is totally and only his righteousness that justifies and saves us. And any good work that we do end up accomplishing is only possible through his spirit working through us. So that as Jesus said, it's not the doers of, of this shining your light before others. It's not the doers of the work that are glorified. It is the, your father who is in heaven. It is the one who is producing those good works in you that is to be glorified. Not the light bearers who are praised, but the light himself. We must be careful. We must be careful that we do not begin to rely like the scribes and Pharisees did, as Jesus described them here, on our own righteousness, our own deeds to appease God. We must remember our need for Jesus and depend on him completely for our salvation and our sanctification. Our mentality, I think, should be a lot like this Puritan who penned these words that I'm going to read to you. This is uh, from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And I want to read an excerpt from a prayer to God that I think really illustrates how we ought to respond to God's word this morning. So I ask you to intently listen to these words. This is a prayer directed to God. Thou hast taught me the necessity of a mediator, a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all my heart, as a king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to take away my sin and death, And this by faith in thy beloved son, who teaches me not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try and rule and conquer sin, but to cleave to the one who will do all for me. Thou hast made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance as a mourning for the sin which Christ, by grace, has removed. Continue, O God, to teach me that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness. And not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as unspotted evidence of thy love to me. Help me to make use of his work of salvation as the ground of peace and of thy favor too, and acceptance of me, the sinner, so that I may live always near the cross. It is Christ's work to save us, and to cling to him by faith is our work. Let us always live near the cross, because our righteousness simply isn't enough. Would you stand with me, and we'll pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he has made what is impossible for us possible. Open up our eyes, show us, remind us that we cannot save ourselves, that we are inadequate to do so. 
we admit and confess that we are quick to forget that. Remind us constantly of our need for Jesus. And as we go from here, may that be on our hearts and minds continually. Help us to cling to him for our salvation and our sanctification as we go. We pray all these things. So thankful that you listen, that you care, and that you love about us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.